Hello and welcome to episode 54 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav, the sage of the inward eye here in Chicago. And with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the Soulfire Grandmaster, Shane Beeps. What's up, Stan? Do I sound a little hoarse to you this week? Yeah. You're also wearing a saddle. What's that about? Well, pony. (laughs) Excuse me. That's not for a dramatic effect. I've got this cold that I just can't kick ever since I got back from Chicago. So if I sound weird or cough, forgive me. That's what happens when you come to the Windy City. Well, we know that podcast listeners are very forgiving of audio issues. So should be. We should be all good there. Also with us here in Chicago, the Master of Pearls, Dave Harburger. Master of Pearls was a was a house in Limited. Oh, yeah. So was Sage of the Inward Eye, actually. Zach is off this week on a Hawaiian vacation. On this week's episode, we kick off the show with a breakdown of last week's MTGO Pioneer preliminary results. Then in the dive down, we will be experimenting, dare I say brewing, with Monastery Mentor in Pioneer. Each of us designed and tested a different deck built around the card and bring back stories from the front lines. Finally, in the wind down, we take some listener questions. But first, housekeeping. All right. First, we want to thank Jason H., Jason R., Victor H., and Sean D. for joining the Dive Down Nation via our Patreon. We're super happy and thankful to have your support. And so speaking of the Patreon... This week's episode is a very special request from one of our top-tier patrons and a longtime citizen of the Dive Down Nation, James B. Uh, Every six months or so, our very awesome double-sided Diamond Dust Rare-tier patrons get to request an episode topic from us, and James wanted us to investigate potential homes for Monastery Mentor. So we're going to get into that later, but we're more than happy to oblige him. And if you want to get your topic covered on the Dive Down or support us in any way at all, Head on over to patreon.com slash the dive down. You know, even a buck a week is a huge amount of support for us. Helps us pay for hosting, tools, Patreon supplies, editing, and gets you access to the super secret Slack server, cool Patreon swag, uh, all that good stuff. So thanks again to James B and all the awesome citizens of the nation. And along with our patrons, we're also supported by manatraders.com. You can get 15% off your first three months of a subscription of the best magic online rental service around. You know, we've been loyal users of manatraders before they were a sponsor. I'm about to hit my one year mark with them. So you can go to manatraders.com and use code the dive down, all one word when you sign up. And so let's head back on over to Stan at the news desk for the breakdown. Dateline 2020. As of the new year, Magic the Gathering Online. Premier Play, which basically kicked off a few weeks ago, is holding a series of tournaments across formats called preliminaries. And you may have heard about this, but if you haven't, prelims are basically designed to be a very high EV league style event with only five rounds. We're finishing with four or five wins nets you, along with usual stuff like play points and treasure chests, 40 qualifier points. And 40 qualifier points is enough to enter into a PTQ event, which we've talked about before. One of the best ways to get into a player's tour, formerly Mythic Championship, formerly Pro Tour. Still a PT. Back to being a PT. 
That's right. Yeah, like formerly you could just get into those PTQs with like 30 ticks or 300 play points, so effectively 30 bucks. And that led to those events being really big. Like they would go eight or nine rounds of Swiss, they'd cut to a top eight with three more rounds, and that was all on the same day. So people would be on Magic Online from morning till night or afternoon till late the next morning. It wasn't a great system, and I think this is effectively a way for them to make PTQs online smaller. Yeah, the new model is designed to essentially gate the entries a bit by forcing people to enter with qualifier points rather than just buying into the tournament. Uh, and you earn these qualifier points more slowly, either through regular leagues or perhaps all at once in a preliminary event. Sweet. And for the breakdown this week, we looked at the data from the post-ban Pioneer preliminaries. So after Oko and Nexus of Fate were removed from the format to get a snapshot of today's competitive Pioneer landscape. And since the first couple of tournaments in this series include Oko, specifically on the last four preliminaries, which starts with the tournament that was held on December 17th. And we're not going to go through every deck that appeared in each tournament, but rather we're taking more broad stroke surface level reads on what did well and what was represented highly. To start, there were several decks that went 5-0 in these tournaments. And in three of these events, there were multiple players who went 5-0. And the decks that won the preliminaries that we're looking at include Is It Phoenix, which won twice, Mono Red Aggro, Is It In Soul, Mono Green Ramp, which won twice, and Blue White Control. I think it's slightly important also to mention that the Mono Red Aggro that did win was kind of like a big red deck piloted by Todd Anderson. It wasn't kind of the low to the ground um, prowessy style, in case anyone was curious. How you feeling about Is It Phoenix now, everybody? Oh, I'm going to get to Is It Phoenix when we really digest this data, but I think the deck is actually better than ever thanks to some really clever changes. I also thought it was interesting to look at the 4-1 or better decks too. So that's kind of what anyone's really shooting for in these events. They want to go in, get their 40 QPs and, and get out with some extra EV on top. And so there were 38 decks here including the five O's and the following decks showed up more than one time. And it was blue white control with seven green ramp style decks with seven mono red aggro. There were four of, and three of those were big and only one was kind of the, the frenzy low to the ground aggro four gruel aggro decks, three is it Phoenix decks. And then a bunch of one of's like Simic devotion without Oko zombies, dredgeless dredge, mono black aggro, a bunch of other stuff was also in there. Yeah, and looking at the entire meta share of decks that went 3-2 or better in the last four preliminaries, the top 10 decks from the week are Blue-White Control, which appeared 16 times, Mono Green, which appeared 10 times, Is It Phoenix and Gruel Aggro appeared 8 times, Mono Black appeared 7 times, a Mono Green Ramp strategy appeared 6 times, And then Mono Red Aggro and Dredgeless Dredge both appeared four times. And Teamer as well as Blue Green appeared three times. So that second place column, the the G decks, those are basically, those aren't like Mono Green Devotion decks, right? Those are like the Mono Green Ramp style decks. Is that correct? Yeah. So what I've noticed on MTG Goldfish is that there's two differentiators for Mono Green Ramp. One is just G. And those do not include the card Hour of Promise. 
as opposed to the ramp deck, which is also mono green, and that does include our promise. So I think you could make a compelling argument for really combining these two strategies as one category because it seems like there's really only one card that makes the difference. Yeah, and I noticed that one of those uh, blue green decks, the Simic decks at the in the end, one of those was a it looked like a mono green ramp deck splashing for growth spiral. So effectively, pretty much in the same category as the mono green ramp style decks. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me from this top ten list is that a number of these decks were strategies that were previously hit by Pioneer's earliest bands. Things like Mono Green Devotion, Mono Black, and even Simic were all decks that were using either Oko, sometimes they were using Oath of Nyssa, Mono Black was using Smuggler's Copter, and it seems like even without these cards, the decks are still able to operate at least on some axis. Likewise, we see a number of decks that were essentially unaffected by bands displaying a strong showing throughout the week. And that's stuff like Blue-White Control, Blue-Red Phoenix, and Dredge. So looking at these two points in tandem, it kind of confirms to me that the bands provided really a net positive to the format by both supporting meta diversity without ever really killing entire strategies. Yeah, I think it's interesting to notice that the decks that you brought up in that second point are maybe decks that have yet to have a card band, but definitely have cards that are on the watch list right now, especially Blue Eye Control and and Is It Phoenix? I think both happen to be playing cards that have potential to be banned in Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise. Both of them draw a lot of power from those particular cards, and I think they really are the cards that help them make them really playable or factors right now. Um, yeah, I also think, Dave, Blue Eye Control might be the the deck that really utilizes Dig Through Time right now and in the least essential way. Like, I don't think that blue white control is really hanging its hat on dig as opposed to sort of the power it gets from all the rest of the cards in it. Yeah, but it is really, really good. Oh, it certainly doesn't suck. Yeah. It's certainly, it's not a marginal impact on the power of the deck in my experience playing it. So e even if it's not like, Hey, uh, blue white control wouldn't go away. If dig was to get banned, it still would make it a lot less powerful. I mean, yeah, I mean I've heard people, you know, with, without hesitation, just be like, yeah, we'll just run some chemistry's insights or something like that. Instead. It doesn't seem, yeah. Yeah, hieroglyphic. I mean, there's tons of four mana draw to at instant speed options, including uh, Glimmer of Genius and also, uh, what was I just about to say? Oh, hieroglyphic illumination if you like one that is cycling. So there's just, there's tons of good cards in that slot. But Dig Through Time sure. is real, real good. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah when, when I have a Dig Through Time cast against me, in a control shell i'm just like oh man they're gonna get whatever answer they need for right sure. now or answers and with dig you don't need to hold up four mana you can do it for two mana yeah it's amazing anyway yeah anyway looking at these top 10 decks by categories i think there's a lot of variety in pioneer right now um you know i group them as five essential tiers we had control decks in the form of blue-white. We had ramp decks with these various mono-green strategies. A lot of aggro, be it gruel, mono-black, mono-red, or even dredge. Some mid-range strategies. I consider blue-red phoenix a somewhat mid-range deck. Likewise, this blue-green deck, sans oko. Pretty, or feels pretty mid-rangey to me. And then the teamer lotus field decks. I would call those a, a combo deck. 
Oh yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting too, Stan, I'm looking at kind of the totals you worked up here. And I think if we kind of moved literally every deck into the category, it probably should be like if we took three of these mono red decks and put them in the mid range, cause they're kind of pretty, they're pretty slow. They're not hyper aggro. You know, I think that we'd have a pretty balanced format. Totally. Besides the besides the combo decks, we're gonna you know we're looking at you know mid teens of control decks, mid teens of ramp decks, mid teens of aggro, mid teens of mid range, and then our, our we don't know I don't think many people would want combo to be on the same footing. Maybe some people would. Um, me personally, I, I I like when combo is sort of something you have to think about, but not necessarily expect to see constantly. And so I think that that's it's looking pretty balanced. Yeah, and one thing that really strikes me is how powerful and represented these monocolored decks are. I think this might tell us that a monocolor strategy is just as reliable as something that's playing two or three colors. And it's worth noting, these decks aren't running a suite of basic lands. It just doesn't really look like greedy three, five color strategies are seeing a ton of success, you know, with only a handful of exceptions, if that. But even the monocolor strategies are still playing stuff like Mutavault or castles, maybe in some cases deserts. Yeah, so right now it's safe to say that perhaps the two best looking decks, or maybe just the best looking deck, is blue white control, but also these ramp strategies. I think it's something that people are kind of sleeping on. I think that right now we're seeing the results looking like a lot of green and green based ramp is really killing it, along with the blue white control decks. That green ramp deck is really, really tough to play against. I, I found I, I encountered it a number of times in the leagues that we played this week and in testing in like the tournament practice room. And it is basically like playing against Tron, but mm-hmm. in but in Pioneer. Yeah. And so that was an unwelcome sight to me when I suddenly realized there was a deck that was winning off the back of Ulamog and Ugin floating around in the in the format. How are people getting how is this working, Dave? Like, so you've, you've seen it, I think, more than I have even. It is kind of hard to explain because I, I'm not entirely sure how they manage to get there all the time, but they're basically running ramp spells like um, there's the Nissa's titled one from Origins that lets you kind of go grab some some cards. It has If it has Spell Mastery, you get to get two cards instead of one. Or Nissa's Pilgrimage. Uh, Nissa's Pilgrimage, yeah. It also runs uh, this elf out of M19, that costs three and lets you dig five to grab a land and put it directly into play. It runs Arboreal uh, Grazer to be able to ramp an extra card from your hand into play. And then it runs things like um, the Tomb of the Forgotten Gods to be able to try to get up to seven seven lands and then be able to crack a bunch of cards for um, for double mana for as, as soul lands, essentially. The other thing that it does really well is it, it our our promises out a couple of cards too. So sometimes it gets it gets a couple of tokens, but also our promise can go and just get you know two additional cards for five, which is really worth it in a deck where you're basically trying to get to seven. And then it runs Sanctum of Ugin the same way that you know Tron does to be able to go and get multiple threats essentially. So it really is kind of like the Tron package plus new lands and some new enablers instead of the uh, luck, the charms that are basically in, are the eggs that are basically in Tron and Modern. Yeah, this is funny. This Looking at this deck list, once again, it looks kind of like a combination between a Titan Shift deck and a Tron deck, where you're running a bunch of green creatures to enable you to ramp a little bit. 
in like your, you know, your Elvish Rejuvenator, your Arboreal Grazer, your green spells like Nissa Pilgrimage. And it you just want to get to a pile of lands to then cast things that are going to end the game, like Worldbreaker, Ugin, the Spirit Dragon, and Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger. Yeah. And it's really hard to tangle with. It's even harder to tangle with those cards in Pioneer than it is in Modern, too, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting, too, is when we're talking about kind of the counts, Blue-Eye Control did have the most uh, four ones, too. It had six four ones along with the one win. So it's certainly showing up a lot. I think people are enjoying playing it and having success with it. But I think both of these decks are definitely forces to be reckoned with right now. Speaking of Blue-White, there isn't a ton of white happening outside of this deck. Uh, there's some like random one-off decks like Abzan Midrange, Boros Knights, White Weenies, Boros Feather that appeared in these preliminary results. But it looks to me like not only does blue-white control more than double all other white strategies combined, but it feels like these Planeswalkers and these Wraths are just the main reason you would be playing white right now. Which then kind of makes me wonder, how do you guys reconcile this narrative and magic, especially in Modern and Pioneer, that white is not only bad, it's just the worst color. And yet, blue-white is one of the most popular decks, potentially the best deck in the format. Every dog has its day, Stan. I mean, you're also saying blue-white, you know what I mean? That's not just white. It's, the white is almost a, a concession to the fact that you have to run it to play some of these awesome Planeswalkers. I mean, you do get some nice all permanent removal and things like yeah. cast out and you know you need it for your supreme verdicts and you can run it for your set all the wreckages and things like that but largely you're not basing your your creature suite around it you're basing your planeswalker and removal suite around it weirdly you do base your creature suite around it because you just have lyra and castle ardenville right. and that's kind of it but um yeah i mean i i think that it's one of those things where blue is the power here and then you have to run wrath so wrath is the the card that comes with it i mean white is i think people mostly knock white because it's it's narrow in the sense that it has good removal and often that's kind of it and so it ends up being and sideboard cards of course so it, it mm -hmm. tends to be this thing where people pair it along with other colors but it's always kind of like the secondary player there's not a ton of decks where it's the the lead and then my last point that that jumped out to me was that in is it phoenix young pyromancer appears to be better than thing in the ice specifically in this deck in this format and the reason i say that is just because i've seen over the course of this week this slow progression toward fewer and fewer thing in the ice and more and more young pyromancer in these pioneer preliminary decks including one if not both of the 5-0 phoenix decks running the full playset of young peasy and I got to say, I love it. I love it as a threat that is basically live the turn after you cast it. You don't have to put in all this work to try to flip it. And maybe the upside of Thing in the Ice being a pseudo wrath that bounces back all the creatures. Maybe that's not really what the format needs right now. I think it's mostly about speed. That Thing in the Ice is just kind of too slow to flip as it's turned out in uh, Pioneer. And it's just unfortunate, but that's just kind of the way that it is, even though it's powerful and there's a lot of creature decks, sometimes you're just better off with the consistency and making the army off of the young Pyromancer. I think that, you know, this kind of all started with the one person who won the challenge a couple of weeks ago with 
with is it Phoenix with uh, Young Pyromancer instead, and it's really just kind of pervading the metagame since since then. And I'm I'm glad to see that it's helped put a little bit of a shot in the arm in the archetype. I think that a blue red spells deck in the format is something I would like to see, and so I'm I'm happy to to give it a try. I haven't had a chance to try it out myself the last couple of weeks because I've been playing other decks, but um, I'm looking forward to doing that over the next week or two. Totally agree. This is basically the one reason why I've decided to retry Is It Phoenix after being pretty disappointed with the thing in the Ice versions previously. Yeah, Dave, you just want to use your tokens. I mean, I love my tokens. I also honestly really just want a Lightning Axe stuff. I've been saying that for weeks, that I just want a deck where Lightning Axe is good, and this is the best one, so I'm glad to see that it's getting somewhere. Yeah, Axon makes me feel good. I think one one more thing I want to mention before we move on to the uh, a little discussion about the modern prelims is look at gruel aggro okay so gruel aggro is holding its own quite well both in the four ones and in the three twos and better and gruel has pretty bad mana i'm just going to keep banging this drum okay so imagine gruel aggro in a world where it didn't have to play game trail i think that this is a strategy that's going to be holding its own in the format for the 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 gruel heads out there and just wait until we get the pain lands or the fast lands printed into pioneer and that deck's going to be even better i wonder if getting a reprint of those fast lands in an upcoming core set is all but guaranteed now we'll see i expect to see the pain lands first because they're not really tied to any plane yeah, I don't know what they're going to do about that problem because Mirrodin is supposed to be kind of toast. So I, I, I don't know. Well, if that's just my point do... with the core set. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if they're going to do one of those things where they just sort of ignore the fact that they have plain specific names and just print them wherever they want anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a law. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great uh, kind of wrap up on the state of the meta for Pioneer right now. But I think that it, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about how things were looking in the modern preliminaries, because at the same time uh, that the Pioneer ones have been going on, there's been at least five or six modern prelims that have been pretty cool to take a look at as well. It looks like they were a bit smaller than the Pioneer preliminaries with fewer decks, which I think you can infer there were fewer players. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people, like we've said the last few weeks, that are interested in Pioneer, and that's just kind of where we're at right now. But, um, you know, we had some takeaways that we wanted to share with everybody about about Modern as well. So what have you noticed, Dave? Anything uh, really jump out at you? Well, I mean, the number one thing that sticks out to me looking at these lists is that there's kind of two types of decks emerging in in some way. There's sort of decks that want to run Oko, and then decks that want to be fast, and the list of decks that want to run Oko is getting to be more and more and more diverse. But it seems like there sure are a lot of places that Oko is popping up still. And it just kind of seems to be doing the same thing to um, to modern that it was doing to Pioneer, but almost in a to a greater extent because it's so much easier to splash and just play the card. It's insane. I was going through, I think, the most recent preliminary result, the one that was published like on Friday. And it was just deck after deck oko 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 yeah it's like every mid-ranger control deck is happy running oko right so you have grixis now a lot of four color grixis decks popping up you have it showing up in things like like amulet titan which i know is more of a combo deck 
maybe sort of, a, yeah, more of a combo deck really, but that's in there to help give you some value. It's definitely showing up in this new kind of snow band control shell that's kind of on the on the research, which I think is a really cool deck as well. It's kind of capitalizing on Arkham's Astrolabe and Oko and a couple other things to bring control up to the higher higher level with everything else in, in modern. Yeah, I think in this deck specifically, that slot used to be occupied by Stoneforge Mystic. And now they've taken out all the stone forges and just started running oko instead yeah i mean so that that's cool to see and so there's a little bit of of innovation in that sense but it really is kind of innovation and getting everybody on the same page with playing playing oko together the other thing i would say that's interesting is some of the like meme decks that are starting to pop up on twitter with with oko in mono red prowess or oko in burn has been kind of fun to see i don't there doesn't seem to be many of those kind of Mimi Speed Oko decks in the modern prelims, but it's kind of interesting to to see those out on the uh, the internet and maybe maybe we'll try them out and have have some fun with that sometime. I'd love to have Burn plus Tarmogoyf plus Oko and just kind of see where it goes. You'd love that, Dave. You think that's a good thing? I, I mean, I think it would be a fun thing to see. I don't know if that's going to be the final nail in this. You know, the the growing outcry around Oko just being too much everywhere and people all starting to line up with Zach's kind of school of thinking about Oko just being too much, even for modern, but we'll see. The flip side is kind of a resurgence of straight up aggro decks. Like we we've talked, we talked about earlier at the top of the modern part. And the one that's really interesting to me is that there's actually been quite kind of a lot of infect showing up in the five Oh and four one lists in these, in these modern prelims, which is cool. I think it's came in, with perfect records and a couple of them. I saw another one as a 4-1. These ones aren't all running Oko. It seems like occasionally it shows up in the sideboard, but mostly they're just trying to to run fast and probably outrun decks like, um, you know, any of the mid-range decks like that. Any thoughts on Infection? No, I mean, I, I, I noticed that I've seen a lot of Bant Infect just come back. I have seen it running some Oko just as value. But yeah, when you want to go fast and there's not a ton of sort of direct interaction in the format, you you want to be playing. Uh, in fact, the fact that the only real mid-range interactive deck at all that I've really noticed is the shadow type decks, and you can hope to dodge them or just get lucky and beat them. Or if when that's the only sort of mid-range threat and Jund is effectively nowhere, you're feeling a lot better is in fact. Yeah. And Burn is effectively nowhere as well. Yeah. Red Prowess, of course, is going to be an issue, but it's not the same as yeah. Burn or Jund. And speaking of Red Prowess, it looks like that deck has started to show up a lot more too. In the in my kind of cursory glance through the the prelim lists, there were it showed up at least three times in the four ones. So it's around, it's doing all right. Um you know, Stan, what do you think about our favorite deck kind of returning to the scene? Number one in our hearts. Yeah, I found it interesting that Steamkin is becoming a very consistent player in this deck. Um, and it looks like over the week of preliminaries and modern specifically, three Runaway Steamkin and three Bedlam Reveler feels like stock right now. Yeah, when you don't have to worry about a lot of removal hitting your Steamkin, it's pretty nice to be able to get some value out of it. Of course, it can get elked. But it keeps the counters. Certainly does. It's true. So it's bigger than a 3 3, huh? Yeah, it becomes a 6 6. <laughs> I know math. I listened to the math episode. I think not only that, but even if you are pointing removal to Steamkin, like you're kind of putting your life into your own hands because at a certain point, this creature can just allow a player to storm off. You know, if they have enough one mana spells, maybe like free spells like Metamorphose or Gutshot, 
at that point, you can just start generating a ton of value, maybe even churn through your deck a little bit in instant speed and and you know accrue value even after it's been targeted with removal. Really cool. And then humans is showing up a lot too. So the the aggro contingent is your kind of infect humans and mono red prowess kind of area. So, but I think overall it feels like there were lots of decks at the top of these prelims. It's just that a lot of those lots of decks are also running Oko. So it's a question of if you feel like that is true diversity in the format or not. But, you know, I counted a good number of decks. It didn't feel like there was anyone that was as pervasive as Blue White was in in our our notes on Pioneer. So Modern is kind of diverse and not diverse at the same time. Yeah, I think right now Modern feels like until we get the next set, it is what it is. I think there's some slight you know, goings on behind the scenes in terms of the metagame. But right now, I think there's nothing that's breaking out. And the good decks are staying the good decks. I think a lot of that has to do with the tournament schedule as well, you know, without incentive to innovate with or without new technology being printed. I think you're just going to have a lot of stagnation. Yeah. And our biggest modern tournament was like the players championship for SCG, which was just a 16 person highly metagamed tournament. So we couldn't really even get much data out of Mm -hmm. that. That's valuable for the wider player base. Yeah. And let's let's never speak of it again. Well, even I was just going to say, even the energy players championship that was happened today and yesterday it was a similar thing where it was a small field and yes people you know kind of were highly metagamed for what they thought other people were going to play and it had a bunch of interesting twists and turns in the way the format worked so it's kind of hard, hard to take takeaways from that particular tournament either but they were cool if you watched them but i think that's about time for us to move on that wraps up this week's breakdown we're going to take a quick little break and when we return we're going to pay a visit to the monastery We have a little business with our mentor, so stay with us. As we mentioned in housekeeping, this week's dive down was a patron request. So thanks to James B. for presenting us with a very unique challenge. James basically told us that Monastery Mentor was one of his favorite magic cards, and he'd love to see a deck that makes it work in Pioneer. He suggested Esper and Mardu as some starting points for where he's seen the card pop up in you know the first few weeks and months of the format. But when we started putting this episode together, the only Pioneer decks on MTG Goldfish that used Mentor was Blue-White Control, which sometimes had a couple copies of the card in the sideboard. Though... It wasn't quite a staple that appeared in every version of the deck. Rather than doing a deck dive on a strategy that featured James' request in the sideboard, we decided to take it one step further. We each sat down with a pen and paper. I think Dave technically used a pencil, and for that we apologize. And we started building mentor decks more or less from scratch. Shane looked at green-white, Dave at Mardu, and I went the Esper route. So we'll talk a little bit about our individual findings, results, and methods shortly. But first, what's the deal with Monastery Mentor, and why do you guys think people like this card so much? So way back in episode 17, our episode called The Best Unplayables, I I picked this card to talk about because, like James, I also had a lot of affection for this ever since uh, I was playing Standard. And it came out right after Cons, which I had been playing. And this card just looked really sweet. You know, it's a it's a two and a white for a two two human monk 
with prowess, which is whenever you cast a non-creature spell, it gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. But also whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you created a 1-1 white monk creature token that also had prowess. So it's pretty appealing, right? So it seemed like it had a, a pretty high power ceiling just from casting some spells and building your board wide and having a lot of fun with some prowessy monks, right? But Mentor had never really been a player in standard, really, let alone modern in any really real way, even with this seemingly high power ceiling, right? Like the floor was just too low for three mana. Yeah, it's it's really weird because I think at the time that this card came out, everybody was really hyped about it. It was a pretty expensive card out of out of Fate Reforged right away. But I was just sitting here now thinking, I don't remember Mentor ever even being good in standard. And that's the thing that's really interesting about it is that I think everybody is super into this card because mostly I think that they remember Young Pyromancer. And this on its face is a more powerful version of Young Pyromancer. So what's the deal with why this card can't can't make some waves either in, in Pioneer or Modern? And so that's what we wanted to think about today, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because even in Modern, like even when we had the free spell of like Git Probe to create that instant value and like cheap cantrips and other spells, it hasn't really done anything. And we know that it has power level somewhere, right? Because it's been restricted in Vintage. It sees play in Legacy decks as Miracles as a two of sometimes. So there's got to be some potential there. And we've seen Mentor hanging around the fringes of Modern and Blue-White Control, something you bring in from like the sideboard to take over the end game, but not much else. What is it about this card that you think really draws people to it, y'all, considering you know it's its lack of real history in any playable format besides the, the ultra-powerful like zero and one-mana spells and, and of formats of Vintage and Legacy? Well, I mean, I think it's mostly the fact that it's really looks like a functionally better version of Young Pyromancer. It's got prowess, yeah, like said, yeah. so it's more of a threat on its own. It makes tokens that have prowess, so the tokens feel like they're more of a threat on their own. Um, it's that one little difference in generic CMC that just doesn't look like a problem. And frankly, I think that the other problem is kind of what Stan was talking about in the breakdown where he asked about what's the deal with white being the worst color. I, I do think that there's a lot of restrictions that come with with Monastery Mentor just because it's a white card in itself. Yeah, like the first deck I ever brewed was actually built around Ojutai's Exemplars and Monastery Mentor and other uh, white and blue-based cards in like Khan's block. And it was really designed to sort of take advantage it was almost like a, a heroic deck but it was just based on like protection from god's willing and power from defiant strike and things like that and of course that didn't do much but that deck it's i mean but it was it was something that drew people to it because you wanted to do something fun with those prowess tokens yeah i think to answer your question shane the fact that it has proven power level in vintage and legacy i think tells people that the card has a lot of potential right that it can earn its keep and as a result it feels to me like this might be one of those cards and and i have these as well where it's you're where you're kind of just waiting for it to break out because you know it has that potential and you know it's capable of being a real card that was worth your investment when fate reforged came out 
I mean, I've definitely fallen for this card a bunch of times, right? I don't know if there's, if you all remember, there's a story that I think I've told on here before where I went to a regionals, a modern regionals here back in like 2016, I guess, where I, the night I was going to play like a Jeskai control deck. And then the night before I switched it into a Jeskai mentor slash young pyromancer deck with get probe and like all the cheap spells like path to exile and lightning bolt and probe and it was just a bloodbath like it's one of those things where like it's part of the reason that i don't really brew all that much anymore is because that one time i was like i'm gonna take a shot on something and it was just brutally bad and And that was um, before opt was in the format so did you not have any instant speed one mana blue cantrips no i just had serum visions yeah and so you know to on today, since I was playing Mardu, I was I actually played four Young Pyromancer and four uh, Monastery Mentor in the deck that I was working on. So, really felt like a little bit of deja vu <laughs> over the last last week or so testing this deck. Deja vu all over again. So that's Mentor's role in other formats, and although things don't look great for Mentor in Modern right now, we liked the prompt from James to explore Monastery Mentor and Pioneer. Due to the somewhat worse removal suite and slower speed of the format, we wonder, does Mentor have a chance to shine here? Likewise, Mentor doesn't have Bolter Path to worry about, and it's quite a bit harder to enable Revolt and Pioneer for Fatal Push. That said, Wild Slash still takes out a non-prowessed Mentor for mana advantage, as does Stomp, Abrade, Lightning Strike, Abrupt Decay, Noxious Grasp, Grasp of Darkness, Lava Coil. I think you get the picture. So to begin exploring this theory, each of us took a different deck through the magic online gauntlet between tournament practice rooms and some leagues to see what we thought. Now, I will say there was a little bit of a discussion that that went in before this, that maybe this would be our first inaugural uh, time where we would do what I've been calling the dive down cup. And maybe maybe that's not what it is. Maybe it's not a cup. Maybe it's more of a um, maybe it's more of a certificate, kind of a, a or a ribbon. I, th- I think it's more of a small clay bowl, <laughs> small clay bowl that I can keep uh, my various USB conversion dongles in. Uh, everybody needs one of those. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were talking about doing this episode. I was kind of like, why don't we each brew or tweak a deck? You can practice it as many times as you want. Uh, in the practice room, but you're only allowed to submit one league for results, one out of two leagues for results against heads up me, Stan and Shane versus each other on final record. We thought it'd be kind of fun, add a little friendly competition to this. Did we stick to these rules? Do we feel like we're still going to, at the end of this, crown somebody the the uh, the dive downer of mentor? Yeah, we. I think we stuck to the rules, but there was nothing fun about it, Dave. Things got ugly. Things were said that can't be unsaid. That's exactly what I was going to say, but not 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 between you two. Just things got ugly quickly. Like any hope I had to t- to take this certificate cup bowl from the rest of you were dashed immediately. So I guess I'll just get into it. So this this week, y'all, I brewed, <laughs> or 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 at least I iterated, which is like a type of brewing. So I I took I took the the. The the only page I could out of the Faithless Brewing Guys book, which was, let's try to make a deck not stink, <clears throat> based around a card that you like. 
And because I knew Dave was going to roll with Mardu and Stan was going to roll with with uh, with Esper, I think is what he ended up with. I, I I decided to make a and you would never ever ever play a Jeskai deck. I don't even know what that is. Are those colors? Yeah, they are. Um, although I mean, even though Esper Mentor was the first modern deck I ever built, I knew that this was that was Stan's wheelhouse. So I went with a green white tokens build featuring monastery mentor my my thoughts generally were that mentor could be triggered from those token making spells and green white gives me access to some potentially powerful things having to do with tokens like we get i get the mana elves i get nissa voice of zendikar i get gideon ally of zendikar um the green and white token making spells also work well hopefully with monastery mentor because i don't want to have a ton of other creatures i want to have a ton of other creature making spells hopefully and so my ostensible game plan looked like get a mentor down quickly, follow up with like these reasonably priced token generating spells like Raise the Alarm, like Sapperling Migration, my Planeswalkers that are also triggering, triggering Monastery Mentor. I can go wide. I can eventually go tall. I can eventually win the game. Um, and then alternately, just starting the game with my token generators without relying just on Mentor, I could then convoke out spells like Venerated Loxodon, March of the Multitudes, and just go wider than other decks. And that seemed like a way that I could also eventually win the game, not just relying on those prowess triggers. And so I'll talk about my first version of the deck, which was built around you know the eight elves. I had four Lovestruck Beast. I had four Monastery Mentor. And the reason I had the Lovestruck Beast is because it's just a house, that 5-5 five, five body that only has to have a 1-1 one, one on the board. And I had so many 1-1s one, in my mind with all these tokens I was making. And also it had this one-mana spell to cast on the uh, you know the adventure half, I guess I could say, to then also trigger Mentor. So it wasn't just a creature, it was a spell as well, and that seemed good. I had three venerated Loxodons. I had the the forwardness of Voice of Zendikars, a couple Gideon allies. I didn't want to focus too hard on the double white and the four CMC. Then I had a bunch of token-making spells, like 11 token-making spells. You have your Secure the Waste, your Raise the Alarms, your Sapperling Migrations, your March of the Multitudes, things like that. I can't believe you played a deck with Sapperling Migration in it. Yep. I mean, it's just it's just like a sort of an extra value raise the alarm. Like you don't really need that instant speed too much, and then if you do get the what is it, the kicker off it, it's just some extra value. But yeah, I mean, playing Sapperling Migration kind of tells you the story of this deck, right? Right. And there's a few extra value cards in there. The original deck, like Legion's Landing and Conclave Tribunal, which is that convoke sort of deal with permanent spell. Yeah, like twenty one lands. Um, I'm not going to get into that too much, but it did have the reveal lands and sun petal grove, which is a check land along with things like your temple gardens, your forests, your singleton. I had a singleton Westvale Abbey just as a alternate win con as well. And so I felt kind of, kind of forced to running those subpar duels in the reveal and the check lands over the fast and the pain lands that the enemy decks can run. And so I've kind of, you know, I've hit that drum quite a few times so but that's what i was doing i still i still have to take exception to you hating on the check lands so much i mean they're they they're definitely totally better fine. they're definitely better they're much better yeah for sure they're in a much different bracket than the than the reveal lands yeah and and are. and i'll speak a little bit to that too of course so uh, the sideboard was kind of designed to hopefully handle just a variety of other decks i expected to face so i had my my dromoka's command my rest in peace selfless spirit for like the sweeper decks 
A Fiend Slayer Paladin is pretty cool in white. It kind of shores up your red and, and mono black matchups quite a bit. Some extra Conclave Tribunals. But my initial testing really made me realize that there were some big issues with the way the deck was built, particularly the Lovestruck Beast, which seemed so good at first was ended up being like this big nonbo with what the rest of the deck was trying to do like pumping my one ones into two twos or higher with like a, a nissa minus or a gideon emblem made love struck and able to attack for me a number of times and so i i nixed it for the main i actually won a game because of that interaction uh earlier this week while, while i was leaguing someone was playing a like a red green deck where they had domri anarch of bolus and so they kept playing all these one ones that were going to help a Lo- Lovestruck Beast attack, but Domri gives everything plus one plus zero. Oh. And so they had a bunch of two ones, and the Lovestruck Beast just had to sit there. So it's an interesting thing to think about that Lovestruck Beast seems pretty easy, but there's all these corner cases where your one ones become something else. Yeah. And so, and I also just wanted more spells to trigger my mentors and more ways to pump up my tokens. And I also didn't feel like there was enough ways for me to interact with other creature decks. And there are so many creature decks in Pioneer. And so I really had to go around them or lose. And most importantly, the mana just felt horrid. Like the combination of the reveal lands and the check lands and running only 21 total lands felt just really unusable for me. And it was just a constant issue. And so I I sought to make some tweaks. For what it's worth, I also, looking at your list, I also thought you didn't just didn't have enough early untapped green mana for a deck that was running eight elves. I think you had like, I feel like it was like 14 untapped sources of green. And I really think you probably want to be higher than that. And I think you did too, after you actually played the deck a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So in version two, I, I chucked all the Lovestruck Beasts. I upped the cheap token producing spells, added a couple Oath of a Johnny, which is cool because it just adds a one, one counter to all of your creatures. Uh, and it's only green and a white. Uh, I dumped all the reveal lands, then I added more basics. Um, I also upped the sideboard for more Dromokas Command and a Silk Wrap because I wanted that creature interaction. And then I realized after some more testing that Dromokas Command isn't really that great when your creatures are small. <laughs> and then I discovered Outflank, which is a single white spell that deals damage to an attacking or blocking creature equal to the number of creatures you control. I added one of those to the main deck, one to the side. And in the final version of the deck, I actually tossed Dromoka's Command entirely because it wasn't really pulling its weight with small creatures. I feel like it's a, that's a card that wants larger creatures to get some advantage off and, and remove the opposing you know, big toughness creatures in your way. I also remember that Lovestruck Beast doesn't really need to be an attacking card in your deck. And I added four to the board to bring in against large creature decks as just a blocker and a trader. So, you know, if it could attack, great. But if not, it was still a five-power blocking creature that just stymied some of the opposing Steel Leaf champions and Lovestruck Beasts that were I kept seeing played against me. That was my iterating process, right? It was something I rarely do, but it felt necessary here because it wasn't a tested deck. So the first version of, this, of the deck, you felt like didn't have enough spells to really capitalize on Mentor, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the And the mana was bad. Yeah. So the main thing that you did in the second round was up the amount of token payoffs, reduce the kind of like big creatures and try to up creature creature interaction with Dromoka's command. Yeah. 
And then you realized your mocus command was too narrow. You took that out and you brought in some some things to block out of the sideboard and also continue to hone in on spells that were cheap to be able to play with Mentor. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And also just some, some better white removal or better in this deck, like Silk Wrap and, and uh, Outflank, if you can call that good. Right. But those are cheap spells that trigger Mentor. Exactly. Yeah. How how did how did you stick with like uh, secure the wastes and march of the multitudes and stuff like that, or did those numbers fluctuate? Yeah, I I I brought the march of the multitudes down a little bit from three to two because it, it the base cost is expensive. It's it's like green white white X I believe or white green green X. So the the base cost is three before you get a single life linking token, but when you you know, it, it's kind of a snowbally card is the problem there. And that's something I think I'll get to in a little bit is that it doesn't, it's not a great card until you have a board in and of itself. And so I, I wanted to, I maximized the two CMC spells in Sapperling Migration and Raise the Alarm because those always made two tokens. Whereas Secure the Waste, if you cast it for two, it only makes one token. But, but then it does capitalize on having a bunch of mana or having your mana dorks in play. So it plays well late game. And so there was a, a few of those. There was a few March of the Multitudes. I I eventually went to the full four of uh, Loxodon simply because it was my only like big creature. And when it was working well with the other tokens, making those into a 2-2 base is quite nice. So how did it go? I went bad. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Sorry, James B. Strike one. So first I'll talk about the pros. Okay, so pros of this deck. Um, I think it handles any mid-range or even control deck that's trying to one-for-one you pretty darn well. Like you're making a bunch of tokens and you're playing a bunch of Planeswalkers and you're going to be putting in more damage into them than they can slow down with a removal. And, you know, so a mid-range deck is not going to be happy to see this at all. But for control decks... They're relying on things like Teferi Time Raveler for the bounce, the Teferi 5 Tuck, and then Supreme Verdict sweeping the board. And so you can deal with the Teferis pretty well because if they're tucking or bouncing your tokens, you can just attack back into them and handle them pretty well. Supreme Verdict, of course, is a house. But it also doesn't kill your planeswalkers. And you can like kind of you can pace out and spread out your token generation to not run into it too badly if you really want to, or you can if you're if you're lucky. The deck when it curved out perfectly felt pretty awesome. Like you could get some really wide boards of three three tokens or so. You could be triggering prowess on your monks and just run over your opponents before they could really set up and stop you. But that really required a particular matchup. And a lot of luck. Like, I think a lot of decks can do great with a perfect curve out, right? Like, that's if, if you're always living your dream scenario, every deck's going to be great. And that's really kind of about it to the pros. Like, if, if you just were facing an endless sea of mid-range decks, then sure, play a play a token-based deck, right? But let's I'll get to the cons. So I'm not going to hit the mana drum again, but the, the, the allied mana, even after some adjustments, felt fundamentally pretty bad. Um, relying on mana dorks early and needing those untapped green sources was was challenging. Yeah, um, I, it made me feel like maybe I shouldn't be relying on mana dorks at all in this deck and just run more lands. But there are just so many other decks that get their engine online quickly, like playing like a you know a raise the alarm on turn two 
and making two one one tokens just feels pretty bad. Like I need, I really want to be just doing something more powerful on my turn too, if I could. The opposing aggressive decks, which you got the idea earlier, were an issue for me. Were continued to be major problems. No matter what I was doing, they really stonewalled me quickly because I couldn't really go wide enough to gain those profitable attacks. Creatures like Steel Leaf Champion and Questing Beast just attack right over your tokens. Right. And those were huge issues, especially since Questing Beast could also be killing my Planeswalkers while lowering my life total. Yeah, I had the same problem on the Mardu list for sure. Yeah. I mean, Steel Leaf Champion and Questing Beast are very popular creatures right now, and it didn't feel good, especially because I just couldn't remove them very easily because of the four toughness. And I had so little good creature interaction in the green-white colors that it just felt really tough, especially against anything that had flyers, because I just couldn't buy any time on the ground at all. Oh, I think that's uh, going to be a recurring theme, the issue with flyers. Yeah, I'm sure. I just felt like my creatures just didn't really match up well against what the rest of the format was trying to do and successfully doing. The, the the giant green beefers, those recursive creatures coming back from the graveyard and like the black decks, the the sweepers that were just killing all my tokens, whether it was blue-white control or mono-black bringing in stuff like Cry of the Carnarium against me was just really bad. I think you could, you could try to avoid getting blown up. That requires you being able to be far ahead enough that you're able to do that, which is kind of rare. It's still going to end up being like a two or three cards for one, which is not going to be good for you. So Shane, we know it didn't go great. Yeah. What was your official entry into the dive down ribbon? Okay. So I did, I did a bunch of testing and then I, then I was like, finally, let's take it into the league. I won the first match versus blue white control. And I felt awesome. I, like it was like it was a turn 14 game three win right like it was just like i eked this one out like i think i played well i like i maneuvered into a position where i could win with uh, a, a flipped westvale abbey and that was a lot of fun and i was super hyped i was like let's 5-0 let's 5-0 this <laughs> league guess what happened i went one four yeah <laughs> i think i made maybe one I, I think i might have ran it back i don't know if i made one more tiny change to the sideboard or not um and then i went uh oh three and then dropped so i was just like this i'm i'm not having fun with this deck right now i need to get on to writing my my notes for the show so I, my my grand total in leagues was one and seven so it's i don't think it's taking home any any certificates of excellence Maybe just a participation ribbon. So Shane, what do you think playing and brewing this deck taught you about playing with the card Monastery Mentor itself? I mean, I don't think you want a three mana creature that takes a turn to get online in a deck that's trying to go really wide faster than other aggressive decks, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, as a fit for an aggressive, what's essentially a kind of aggressive strategy goes like Monastery Mentor, I don't think has a great track record as a card that goes in really assertive decks. And I don't know if today brewing with that changed it, because essentially I think that's what the green-white deck should be, right? Is something that's kind of assertive, that the the thing that it does get to do is if we get into the late game with a bunch of extra mana, then we get to put a bunch of extra tokens to play and really go for it. But you're still trying to get into people with chip damage and stuff, right? Yeah, I think what it showed me is... That the the rest of my cards have to be doing something pretty good too. 
like I just had to look at the cards in this deck and how much they cost and say, are they lining up well with what people are doing in the rest of the format, right? So I have this, this Monastery Mentor in, on three, and perhaps for an engine card, if it sticks, if the rest of the deck is built well around it, that's good. But when I, my two mana spells are things like Raise the Alarm and Sapperling Migration, I don't think that's really going to hold up with what other people are doing. Makes a ton of sense. But um, Dave, I, I'm excited to hear about what happened with you and your testing because you have a deck that um, is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, I think, or similar to what is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting that Shane had a kind of assertive deck and I have the task of working with a more kind of mid-rangey deck in uh, what I've been calling Mardu Pyromentor. Um, and I also had the advantage of, I know that we said there weren't a ton of Monastery Mentors floating around in the 5-0 list, but there was one for Mardu Pyromancer Mentor uh, from December 12th. And the username for that was iPadgy. Not a, not a name I recognize. But um, I also had the advantage of being able to work with one of the members of the Dive Down Nation on a deck that they've been playing because they have been playing um, Mardu Mentor Pyromancer at their local game store. And so I just want to give a shout out to Jack the Judge at the top of this, uh, he was kind enough to let me see his list, brainstorm with me a little bit about things that he might improve and, and things like that. You know, I think Mario Pyromancer, which is essentially what this deck was and was trying to port that strategy over into Pioneer, is a deck that I think a lot of people are familiar with from, from modern, right? So it's got, you know, that one at its best had Faithless Looting and Young Pyromancer and Lingering Souls, Removal Spells, Discard Spells, Bedlam Reveler, all tied together by a lot of discard and disruption. You know, uh, Inquisition of Kozilek and Thoughtseize. Essentially, uh, I was going to say Maru Pyromancer is a grindy midrange deck, and I guess it kind of is still, although it's a much less popular deck now, so maybe I'll say was a kind of grindy midrange deck. Um, it's all about trying to turn removal spells and token generators into two-for-ones. So you can stick a mid-game threat like a Pyromancer, a Bedlam Reveler, and win from there, right? Like, that's the general strategy of the Mardu Pyromancer deck. In that way, it's not really all that different from what, like, Jund is trying to do. And there are times back in 2018 where it was better at Jund than Jund was, right? Before Renin 6, before the recent, like, Jund Renaissance, Mardu Pyromancer was sort of the deck that was built to fill that role in the metagame, especially when the metagame was dominated by humans. Is kind of the conventional story that went there. Personally, Mardu Pyromancer was a deck that I kind of loved and hated at certain points in, in modern, but it's not something I had a huge amount of competitive time with because it was a deck that I, I had, but I also wasn't able to get out to tournaments a lot. So I was playing a lot with friends and, you know, I really think Mardu Pyromancer was kind of a meta deck in a lot of ways. And so it was tough to pick it up and play casually and really know like what you were supposed to be doing with it. And then what happens kind of randomly is that it took splash damage from the fate from the banning of faithless looting as well and so the whole deck has been thrown into disarray a little bit in the sense that it doesn't have faithless looting anymore but in modern it now has seasoned pyromancer to be able to play so there's a new kind of like eight pyromancer build there i played that for an earlier version of sleeve believe heave at one point in time as well um 
you know, I never really considered that the deck might have a second life in Pioneer because it just seemed like so many key cards were missing. And I, you know, when the when Pioneer was announced, I didn't even really think that there was necessarily going to be a, a home for Young Pyromancer. Although it's a really, really powerful card, there's just not that many cheap spells in um, in Pioneer. And so to kind of double down on that by adding Mentor, uh, Monastery Mentor to the mix, I think is sort of like you know that's the idea behind this deck is let's let's do the kind of like trade cards for two for ones as much as we can get this token generating army in a can kind of card online and then try to try to win from there so the deck obviously is different from um from the deck in modern and i i really only started paying attention to it when you know jack who i mentioned earlier started talking about playing it in pioneer in our our slack channel and so a lot of Again, I really appreciate him chatting with me about the deck from here. Um, it's very different from the modern deck because in the modern deck, you could do things like get a really early Bedlam Reveler into play off of Manamorphose and Faithless Looting. You could also generate a ton of elemental and spirit tokens really early through Lingering Souls. And so missing Lingering Souls is a giant difference between this deck and, and the, the modern version of it. But some there are there is some commonality. So... You know, Thoughtseize and a couple of cards like Duress and Collective Brutality were are present in Pioneer that we could use. It's a good removal suite in the sense that this deck gets to play some of the best removal that it is in Pioneer and also add a couple of other kind of spicy things to the mix. So you have Fatal Push and Dreadbore, which I think are great kind of cornerstone removal cards to have. And then also you get to run Crackling Doom, which is kind of a, a hilarious card to be able to go up against really kind of untargetable or giant threats or things that Dreadbore can't successfully interact with for some reason. Finally, you have Bonecrusher Giant in here as a, as a great opportunity to try to get some two-for-ones. You also have your legacy level token generators and Young Pyromancer and Monastery Mentor, of course. And then finally, to kind of fill out your threat suite, you know, because this is a mid-range deck, I think there's a lot available to you through using Planeswalkers. And so the deck that I played that I got from iPadgy and Jack kind of ran some suite, a suite of Planeswalkers that consisted of some number of Chandra Torture Defiance, Gideonella of Zendikar, Liliana the Last Hope, and Chandra Acolyte of Flame. So you have a lot of versatility and kind of threats and recycling cards from those. Yeah, I mean... It Red and black really do seem like they offer a bunch of nice cards that you want to play. I mean, those are awesome planeswalkers. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's really it's interesting in the sense that the red and black cards all felt really, really powerful. And a lot of times I was kind of wondering if they're I really should just be concentrating much more on a deck that's in that space instead of trying to do a red-white kind of mid-range deck, which is sort of where you have to be in order to get Monastery Mentor to work. But uh, more on that in a little bit anyway. So I talked with Jack about his experiences playing it. Um, I had some thoughts and theories about playing the list. I, I wanted to, you know, I, I think anybody who's listened to the podcast knows that I've been really kind of f- super focused on cards like Reckless Rage and Lightning Axe and things like that in this one. So my first stab at this deck was to actually put a four of Reckless Rage in the deck so that I had four Fatal Push and four Reckless Rage to just have as much kind of aggressive cheap removal as I could. So I mostly tweak things by doing that with the removal and then trying to get some some card draw into the deck. You know, Jack was running some painful truths. I ended up trying out Castle Lockwain and some painful truths in there. So the deck I finally settled on 
actually had a pretty limited creature suite with just four young pyromancers, four monastery mentors, and four bone crusher giants, which are basically shocks, right? I had five planeswalkers. I had two Chandra Torch, two Chandra Acolyte, and one Gideon. And then I had Fatal Push, Thoughtseize, Dread Boar, Crackling Doom, Painful Truths, and the card that I actually think is the best card in this deck that I forgot to mention earlier in my wrap-up, which was Colian's Command. And that was pretty much the whole deck, was a bunch of removal, a couple of draw spells and two-for-ones, planeswalkers, and my token generators. So I took that into the queues. And so much like Shane did, I'm going to st start with the pros of the deck, and then we can talk about the negatives. So the card power level deck I actually thought was really high in this deck. And so it was interesting to sh see Shane kind of play a deck where the surrounding card level was actually kind of like low power, right? It was a bunch of token generators and things like that to kind of enable this go-wide token strategy. I, I felt like the deck that I was playing was essentially inserting some medium resilient threats into a deck that was just full of really, really good removal, like the best removal that was in the format. So Fatal Push is great, even though you have to work for Revolt. Uh, Dreadbore is super duper good. And I feel like people sometimes think that it's hard to justify it against Murderous Rider, but I think that the mana efficiency was really worth it in this deck. Um, and Coligan's Command was kind of the big one, like I said. And I turned that into many, many two-for-ones, because the great thing about Coligan's Command is that you can always make your opponent discard a card if you as you kill one of theirs. So card power level was great. The disruption power level was also really high. I mean, I think just straight up playing Thoughtseize out of the deck helped me a ton of different times, be able to take someone's ramp target, be able to take a giant creature I wasn't going to be able to deal with, kind of shore up whatever hole in the plan my hand had. Yeah, we talked about Thoughtseize's relative power level in Pioneer versus Modern last week, Dave, and after you've had some time to, to test with it, what are your thoughts on Thoughtseize and Pioneer? I think that it's really an important card for decks that are just going to run a bunch of board interactive removal spells as their main the main thing that they're doing because, like I said, it helps you fill in the curve of whatever other removal spells you have in your hand aren't going to be able to deal with. And so, for example, you know, I played against Mono Blue Devotion kind of deck. Actually, it was really more of kind of like the Mono Blue... Um, I guess it was Mono Blue Devotion. At any rate, I had to fight against uh, Master of Waves a couple of times, and Thoughtseize is really the only answer that I have for Master Waves in this deck, unless I manage to get off a, a revolted Fatal Push, which is just tough, and sometimes you can't do that, you can't rely on it. So um, I definitely used it against threats like that. I used it to take an Ugin out of a mono green ramp player's opening hand one time and left them with nothing else for their deck to do, and so one of the games that I beat with them was really just one on turn one where I Thoughtseize them. I will say, the two life is actually really kind of a breaker in this deck, and I'll talk about or in this format, I think, and so I'll talk about it a little bit later. But unfortunately, I think that Thoughtseize is just sort of a necessary evil and something that this deck gets to run and, and use to good uh, good effect. And then the last thing that I think was good in this deck was the threats. Essentially, um, I spent a lot of quality time with Bone Crusher Giant in this playing this deck. Basically, it's. It's amazing that this card is really a staple and that all these adventure cards are basically staples. And I, I think we're going to keep seeing it everywhere. I'm sure I want to be playing it still because the card was just so good and so efficient. I also felt like Chandra Torture Defiance was basically one of the best Planeswalker-style threats that you could play in Pioneer. Yeah, she's awesome. 
I think Chandra Torch of Defiance is is one of the cards that is slowly showing herself to be just just one of the best cards in the format. It's what the the bigger red decks want to be resolving and working with. It's a card that you've experienced and I think you're seeing the value of. I think that if you're a, a deck that can play Chandra Torch of Defiance, you want to play at least two or three of because she's awesome. Absolutely. And so I think you should notice the cards that I left off of the good stuff here is I, I really had a tough time with the token generators in this deck because <clears throat> the not-so-good parts of this deck were that, in truth, I think that the enablers in this deck were a bit better than the token generators for me. And I kind of often wish that I was just running for Goblin Legionnaire and for Legionnaire Warboss, sorry, not Goblin Legionnaire, and for Rabble Masters instead of instead of the two token generators, because then I could have just put down a threat that generates tokens on its own. I probably would have gotten as many tokens and just used my removal suite to just kind of clear the board for my my kind of token tokeny threats. I think that the deck might have been better if I had done that. And then I'm very quickly wading into Zach territory there. But, you know, unfortunately, that's just kind of how it felt. And a lot of times I would play a pyro a pyromancer or a mentor and it would immediately die and of course i was waiting to play it as like a four drop or a five drop or you know a three drop uh, three drop essentially so that i had a spell up that i could interact with them to do i can't tell you the number of times that i did wild things where i was like back against the wall i need to keep a token out and so they would kill my my pyromancer and i would have to fatal push my own pyromancer so i could get a token off of it so i could block and not die the next turn happened multiple times and that's not a position you want to be in no that's a that's a bad spot (laughs) yeah it's not good at all so you know my opponent's boards were often wide and kind of big and hard for me to attack into and so I, i really felt like this wasn't the right shell for these cards in in this format personally the mana was also kind of bad in this deck too. And I took a lot of pain from it. You know, yeah. I mean, I I tried to push the build to be more like red-white based, which you really need that early black mana. And so it was really tough to not kind of be like, well, do I want to be a black-white deck or do I want to be a red-white deck? And realistically, I wanted to be a black-red deck. And I took a lot of damage off of shock Shocklands, basically. And then when you couple that with Thought Seize, you're suddenly down to like, you know. 14 a lot of times when you're playing when you're playing cards and it sometimes it does feel great to go untap blood crypt thought sees you turn one but and that's awesome in modern but in pioneer it kind of felt like a big hole to dig myself back out of i also think that some of the planeswalkers in the deck were kind of like suspect i mean chandra torch was really good like i said but chandra acolyte of flame was kind of tough i didn't often have enough mana to be able to leverage her snapback ability when she came into play and so it made it kind of tough because she dies really fast so a lot of times it was just like i'll play this make two tokens and then someone would just kill it the next turn in summary i think there's some kind of mardu ish shell here like maybe red black splash whites or maybe even just red black mid-range control but i don't think mentor is the card to build it around i would probably go back to bone crusher giant and coligan's command and chandra torture defiance and like i said maybe even goblin and Rabble Master and things like that. Um, I did, for my entry into the ribbon race, I managed to eke out a 2-3 in one of the leagues that I did. Oh man, got there. I did get there. I had a similar experience to you though, where I went 2-1 to start and I was like, okay, the 4-1 is still in play and then just got blasted a couple of decks in a row, unfortunately. I felt like it was close a couple of matches, so I did go back and do a second league and actually did worse, where I, I got a 1-4 instead with the second league. <laughs> so 
so my entry is officially the two three, but I um I think that I would go back to something like Phoenix with Young Pyromancer, and I think that if if I wanted to say what I learned about the token generators or the card monastery mentor in this particular deck is that it is really hard to play the card without blue. And I, I think that, you know, in this shell, you know, I often felt like I ran out of cards a lot and it mattered a lot. And that's why at the end in my last build, I tried out two painful truths and castle lockway. And even though they all hurt my, my life total a lot each time, um, because and often honestly caused me to lose races here and there but i really needed the extra cards because i didn't have an engine like a bedlam reveler or something like that to fill my hand back up and i had no way to generate value out of the graveyard and so i had a really hard time porting you know those are the things that are the best parts of the modern version of this deck and you don't really have access to them in this one you really just have access to removal and token generators so that's kind of where i landed with the mardu version of the deck but stan you have a different uh shard you'd like to share with us yeah saving the best for last blue white black best of all worlds in theory so for my portion of this episode i started by taking a current mentor list and that was blue white control and all i did was add a playset of mentor to the main deck and currently blue white control also runs a playset of supreme verdict so to avoid the sheer non-bow between these two cards, I cut the Wraths entirely, added a couple Settle the Wreckage to the sideboard, basically the two slots that Mentor previously occupied, and called it a day. And from the starting point, I began grinding games in the practice rooms to identify what worked well, what underperformed, and pretty much tweaked aggressively as needed, looking toward Black as a way to solve the problems that I was encountering with these early games and really my primary goal was always to identify the most effective suite of cards to accompany mentor because i think when you play for mentor at least in my mind you basically accept that it's going to be perhaps your primary win condition and once i came to that conclusion the problems that i looked to solve for my initial blue white list really began to present themselves because i needed to figure out how am i staying alive until i get mentor online how am I interacting in the early game if my most important play happens on turn three at the earliest? Likewise, how am I going to trigger Mentor consistently? And perhaps how do I even win games without the Mentor? And fortunately, I did feel like sticking to Esper helped narrow down the list of tools at my disposal as I sought to answer these questions for myself and the deck. So the end result that I present with this episode functions like a mid-range strategy and if I were to put it into a more specific grouping, I really think it came down to a protect the queen style deck. The, <clears throat> the outcome is quite threat light. And my only creatures were Mentor and a playset of Jace Vrin's Prodigy. Wow. Okay, you really cut it back. Oh, yeah. Since Mentor can feel like a pretty vulnerable creature at only two toughness, I felt like it was important to add a little extra something to tune up my plan. And that is also when I settled on Kaya Orzov Usurper, the planeswalker I hinted at earlier when I was talking about Dave's strategy. Not only because I like that she triggered prowess, but her plus one helped gain me life. I encountered some of the similar issues Dave did where I was like playing a lot of games, practically starting with 14 life because of turn one shock, 
turn one thoughtsies. But I found that she would occasionally be really helpful in nullifying graveyard strategies. Likewise, her minus one answered a variety of creatures that proved surprisingly relevant across a number of different matchups. And most importantly, perhaps, her ultimate can just win games by itself. So in terms of protecting my queen, Monastery Mentor, the card that I ultimately settled on to basically fill this one very specific role was God's Willing, a single white instant gift target creature protection uh, from a color of your choice, Scry 1. So I, I just got to ask, Stan, with only eight creatures, how often were you finding God's Willing to be kind of a dead card in your hand? Because you can't even target an opponent's creature if you really, really wanted to in a pinch for some reason. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly happens sometimes. But, you know, in theory, if I'm not trying to protect my Jace, I can pitch it to Jace's looting ability. And even if it was quote-unquote dead, I knew it would always be almost a two-card combo once I found my mentor. And I think being able to protect my mentor and having almost a critical mass of one mana spells was so important to what my plan was that the you know occasional games where it wasn't really useful worked themselves out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's definitely a card that I thought about as well. And one thing I'm realizing as you talk about your deck is that one of the main differences between the way that you went mid-range and the way that I went mid-range is that I had no way to protect my mentors. And you have plenty of cards that do protect your your queen, as you said, right? If you think about other cards you could have had in the deck that were one mana, right? There's really not that many in modern. You could have tried Stubborn Denial, I guess, but you're never that's never going to be a counter, right? Because you're not going to have a four, you're not going to have ferocious enabled you, you could have tried dive down as as we talked I about i did try dive down. you did try dive down as well what, what, what happened there yeah there was even a point where i had four gods willing and two dive down but i eventually settled on willing for a couple of reasons a for what chain mentioned there just wasn't enough threats to make dive down useful right. and b i thought that the scry ability on dive down or I'm sorry, the scryability on God's Willing made it for enough of an upside that um, if I only have like four slots for a protection spell, it just gives me slightly better value. And I think it's also worth noting that the protection from a color gave me some abilities to just win combat um, or block without having to lose a creature, even if I'm not able to trade. Yeah. So I don't necessarily like, I almost like zero for one myself, but in a game where I think my plan is trying to stay alive as long as possible and accrue as many tokens as possible, that was really a worthwhile exchange when I had to make it. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand the sentiment. When I was building decks like this in Standard, I was using like Defiant Strike because I was trying to sort of keep the pedal down and draw into more cards. And so it was like something that I could, a single white mana trigger mentor, pump up a particular creature, and draw me another into another card, it felt pretty good. But I think that God's willing in a deck where you need to sort of grind out longer term value is probably smarter because you want to be protecting your creature, sort of negating a card that your opponent's playing and generating another token for you to get value off of longer term. Yeah, and I, I can't pretend like I came up with this tech myself. I looked at some mentor lists while I was starting out and I saw that God's willing was a recurring 
piece of protection in a lot of mentor decks. Probably because it shares a color, probably because it's one mana. Yeah. I mean, it does work in heroic, so it's it's interesting to see it find a home in a different place. Yeah, so staying alive in the early game was something that I thought was really important because I was trying to build toward this engine. And that's when I settled on my playset of Thoughtseize and Fatal Push. Clean answers to my opponent's cards, always a one-for-one, one, as well as cheap ways to activate Mentor later. And because I found that four push wasn't quite strong enough of a removal suite on its own, I also had three cast down as a two-mana removal spell that was able to take care of almost every threat I encountered. A couple situations, I ended up in an embarrassing condition where my opponent played a legendary creature, and I was like, why are you doing this to me? But more often than not, cast down was basically as advertised. The four J's provided some card selection, a nice way to eat a removal spell if I wanted to clear the way for Mentor. I know I talk about this a lot, but I love Lightning Rods, and I never really felt bad if Jace traded with another card from my opponent's side. That said, Jace was great when he was unanswered as well as a way to shrink opposing creatures or recast some of my cheap spells later on to trigger Mentor. The deck does have its suite of Planeswalkers in addition to Kaya, I had Teferi Time Raveler, just for value. Um, I also had a few Absorb, which remained from my original blue-white shell because I found the life gain so useful. You know, we talk about how punishing the mana bases because, like, the lands selection aren't always that great. So since I was doing damage to myself off my shock lands and occasionally off of Castle Lockthwain, the Absorb helped buffer that a bit. Yeah, love it. So how did it perform for you? For starters, I got to say, and I, I'm curious if you guys f ever felt this way in any of the games where you won, but Mentor does work. And this was my very first time ever playing with the card. And I found that the games where my plan was being executed correctly, that creature just snowballs so fast, especially if I'm able to cast multiple spells on a single turn. It can really feel like my opponents just get stuck in the situation that they can't get out of. My creatures keep growing. I'm able to double block really profitably and it seems like short of a rat there's very few ways to get out of a situation like that you know it's interesting i think that in my deck the f even though i focus the creature suite on token generators it turned out that i won quite often off of just a ton of removal and bone crusher giant or a ton of removal and chandra and so it really kind of felt like i would for me, that it was much more of a middle piece. Like, I don't know if I remember any game in particular where it really, really shined for me. But I think that part of that is because I didn't have any ways to protect the card. And you had ways to make sure it stuck on the board through removal, where all I did was try to bring it back or, or get value in different ways. Yeah, I got to say, in addition to Mentor just being an impressive threat on its own, the three Planeswalkers I had worked nicely together in concert. They could all help neutralize some type of threat or accrue gradual value. Um, I really felt like a big brain pro when I could tick up to Fairy Time Reveler while holding a Thoughtseize and then to look at my opponent's hand at the end of their draw step. That's called value. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so but you're saying your mentor does work, but does it do as much work as other three mana spells is you know, sort of my thought process, right? Is mentor is great, when it's online 
when you're when you have a handful of spells to do something after it's on the board but it doesn't get removed immediately but that's a lot to ask sometimes yeah and and i think this really leads to some of the the challenges that i faced with my deck yeah but keep in mind because stan was playing blue he had ways to get more cards that you had no access to and i had limited access to right like he had jace to be able to flashback cards and he had opt and he had to fairy time raveler to kind of bounce something and draw cards so there were a bit more ways for you to keep your hand full than i think any of the rest of us had yeah though it didn't often play out that way i wasn't accruing a ton of two for ones you know jace unless he's flipped the the looting side isn't accruing you card advantage it's just giving you card selection so it was not uncommon to feel like my hand was empty. And that's actually why I started to add the Castle Lockthwain as a way to start getting up on cards when I had uh, none in hand and wasn't worried about doing even more damage to myself. But that being said, Monastery Mentor, three mana, Mythic Rare. Why are you a 2-2? Two -two? <laughs> he dies so easily to basically all the one mana removal spells. Even with Prowess, one of the most unfortunate realizations I came was that Stubborn Denial, as you mentioned, just doesn't really do anything in a deck like this because getting him up to four power takes two spells and that can be a pretty hard condition to line up, even at instant speed. Also, why does Monastery Mentor have to cost three mana? <laughs> yeah, the question that we've always had, getting deep here, Stan. I feel like this was a design choice that had to do with the fact that the Prowess ability is so strong. I mean, it makes infinite tokens that also have prowess. Exactly. But at, that said, at three mana, I found myself in these really tough positions where I had to decide if the cost was, or I had to decide if the coast was clear to tap out for a mentor or if I had to wait until turn four in an attempt to get extra value out of him. By the way, I think the answer to this question, honestly, is you always wait personally. It depends on the deck. I mean, sometimes you know your opponents don't have removal. I mean, yeah, if you're playing against... Or you have an extra mentor in your hand. Okay, those are good. So the default state is wait, I think, in, in my mind is what I would say. I did run across a couple of decks that had like no removal, right? Like I said, I played Mono Blue Devotion, which is essentially Merfolk, which is essentially like they don't have removal. So fine, I'll run it out there. But um, I think for the most part, yeah, you always want to wait because you always want to make sure you get a token. And that's so much harder to do with this than Young Pyromancer because the resource commitment is you know two to three mana that's a big deal yeah it feels like infinite turns later than young pyromancer for some reason not to mention we all kind of danced around this but he's a slow threat you know shane mentioned like he won against blue eye control on turn 14 and that's something i could really relate to any game i won happened way late yeah i think what's interesting about your deck versus the deck i played is i didn't have access to good removal at all and so i'm relying on that aspect of pioneer that where you have to take the board and snowball and that's really hard when my threats are underpowered compared to my opponents whereas you and dave had access to removal which then enables you to sort of try to take the board through your removal sticking a mentor and then continue to keep the advantage keep your advantage and, and and ride it to victory if you could so on this topic of protecting my mentor and whether or not I should tap out. Why isn't Force of Negation legal in Pioneer? Come on. I think that card or a Force of Will effect in general is something that could really be a big 
differentiator in making a card like this or Young Pyromancer even more powerful, you know, relative to the rest of the format. I mean, this is a no free spell format. So I I don't think we're going to see anything anything like a pitch card here anytime soon. <laughs> Sad. Just my take, but something I wonder and I I think you all can relate to, but flyers were so hard to deal with, especially glory bringers. I think if if my opponent resolves a glory bringer, I basically lose on the spot. I mean, dude, how about the times when you had a time uh to fairy time raveler out and a monastery mentor on board and they swing in and kill both of them by exerting the glory bringer it's just brutal and i think my last point in terms of the bad and this is something that i think we can all agree is shane's favorite topic but the mana needs some work and though i never actually felt like it was truly untenable there were definitely some awkward openers that forced me to pitch a hand because i couldn't generate an untapped land quickly enough you know you really hate to see an opener with two or three check lands including castles for that matter. Which also then kind of leads me to think whether these mentor decks should actually be built from the top down based on the mana available to you, which is something that Svi Mauschewitz is some, you know, is known for saying like this is one of the most important steps in building any deck is looking at the resources you have available to you. Yeah, I'd say a lot of great players think that. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to you have to look at the mana and then work from there. Because if you don't have good mana, then your deck's gonna stink. So the results of my league drum roll did he get there no i also got a two three so what, what does that mean do you guys like tie it means we split the ribbon i mean the for with a two three do we just like leave it on the shelf i think we're i think this is a fun pilot this is a backdoor pilot for a new series of episodes for us but uh not the most exciting conclusion this time yeah so the decks i was able to beat were teamer lotus field and mono black vampires I think two pretty real format staples right now. I did lose to four color energy, green, black, mid range, and blue, black control. The blue, black loss was super devastating because they had Field of Ruins, and my first version of this deck did not have any basics in the mana. So, hoisted by my own bad decisions in that case, and I got wastelanded. In Pioneer. So lesson learned there. Don't leave home without at least one basic in your deck. Some next steps that I think you can apply to this deck uh, or any other blue-white based mentor strategies. The early game interaction at one or two mana is so important and maybe even relying less on Absorb or Planeswalkers to deal with my opponent's cards. So if I had more time, I may have tried something like Quench or Sensor. I also think Jeskai might be an interesting place to 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 look because you have better mana you do stand you think jess guy might be good yeah something about a wild slash and dive down and god's willing i just mean you love jess guy and opt <laughs> i mean i do too so i am with you you know i i did find that the one mana spells were among my most important and i don't think i would have gotten my wins without access to some of them so to see that you guys weren't relying on them as much makes me wonder whether we can take this data and continue to learn and continue to innovate and, and find that. But that might be up to more experienced brewers. It might be up to our friends at Faithless Brewing to finally solve the puzzle. All right. So those are the three decks we had. What does everybody think? Should we go over the lessons that we all learned by playing our decks one last time? I think that's a good idea. So Shane, remind everybody the lesson you learned. Monastery Mentor, bad card. <laughs> Ouch. You don't believe that. 
yeah, I think it's a bad card. Um, I don't think it it's it's not gonna it's not gonna do enough for you. If it's not gonna work in modern, it's not gonna work in pioneer. I don't think we have enough cheap spells to enable it, um, or enough protection to uh to make it worthwhile. But on I mean, for my deck, I think that mentor is not on plan with a cast cheap token spells, go wide, pump up tokens, and win because like Stan and I think Dave mentioned is that the speed isn't really there with a three mana two, two that needs other spells to turn it online. Um, I think just is not really a, a smart way to build the deck. I also would throw out there that I don't, I think that your deck went a long way to proving that it's not really good in an assertive deck that it monastery mentor looks like it could be an aggressive card, but I think it's better in something that's reactionary. Some, something a little bit more holding down the fort. Yeah, like you're iterating value over time. Like you're just sort of saying, like this card is going to be worth uh, three tokens over the long game because I'm going to get to a spot where this sticks and I take over the game and I beat you down very quickly. It's not a it's not a card where you're saying like I'm setting the tempo with a with my three mana two two. I think the lesson that that I learned, like I said, is that. Um, you know, in a deck where you're trying to use spells to to kill creatures, it's often more important to kill the creatures than it is to get your threat online and then kill the creatures. And so, having a threat that was more resilient without having to spend additional mana to make it work probably would have been better for the shell that I was in. And so, in the mid range, I think it's hard to use Monastery Mentor specifically and Young Pyromancer a little bit less specifically, just because of the environment of Pioneer versus Modern, where there's not as many good kind of threat cards or ability to, to uh, manipulate the graveyard, and the cards just aren't as cheap. I thought my deck was great to be honest. And the lesson I learned was maybe play a couple basics and try to improve the resources. And also counter spells are pretty good with Monastery Mentor, right? Uh, no? You don't think so? No, no. That's that's something I'm not convinced with because Absorb was important, but it wasn't always the best card in my deck. And I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but maybe Mentor isn't great in a counter spell strategy because the counter suite available to you in Pioneer is expensive and kind of underpowered yeah i have played it out of the board of blue white by the way and won a couple of games off of it but i think that that's very much a sideboard strategy right where it's kind of like okay you don't have a lot of removal i've got counter spells for the pieces of removal you do have and so now i'm going to bring in these creature threats to be able to close the game more quickly because i can i can manage to do that and so i found it effective there but that's not the a plan of that deck by a long shot I wonder how much of the problem is that they're just better token generators, right? Because that's what Mentor ultimately is. It's just a card that produces ideally card advantage by making lots of bodies. And why are you playing Mentor when you could just play one of the three CMC goblins instead? Hey, that's what I asked. I didn't even see this down in the notes uh, coming up before, but I, I totally agree that that was one of the takeaways I had about the Mardu list was I kind of wish I just had Rabble Master. So there you have it, folks. The monastery is warm and the mentor is kind. He can be mighty, but a three CMC maximizing its value in a fair deck leads to some challenging deck building conditions that brewers smarter and more experienced than us will likely have an easier time solving. Faithless Brewing, help. For now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we have a listener question or two or three. Stay with us. 
For this week's episode, we solicited our very loyal, devout, and kind, and generous, friendly, giving, bountiful, dive down nation in our super secret Slack channel for questions, basically on any topic. And what we got was a small selection of ideas that uh, we're going to try to get through as many of them as possible. So I'm going to stop wasting time with words. Blue Cheese asks, what's your third favorite format? And I think the conceit here is that Modern and Pioneer are top two. Hmm. What do you think, Stan? I really like Limited. I don't talk about this a lot, and I don't get to play it very much. But not only do I like drafting, I especially love drafting cubes specifically power vintage cubes yeah you have you have some friends in chicago that are pretty good cubes right totally i get to cast the occasional black lotus moxin force of wills look at this guy you name it i've cast it wow yeah limited rules right typically yeah good sets of limited rule yeah i mean clearly my third favorite is draft slash sealed i guess I mean, limited in general. I'm not a cube person, to be honest. It's always felt a little bit more like playing constructed to me than playing limited. I do love playing a good limited set where I get to like tweak out a deck with some combat tricks and really surprise people. And um, and any result I've ever had of any note has been in a limited tournament. So there's just kind of that to go back to as well. Maybe I should just start playing sealed again kind of get off the modern pioneer tip dave i was just thinking about our uh, gp denver 2018 when we we almost day twoed team limited indianapolis but oh indianapolis that was indianapolis was that before i moved that was not in denver <laughs> oh man i wish it was i think it's interesting dave that you compared cube to playing constructed because one of the reasons why i like vintage cubes in particular with such a high power level of cards is that i think i learn very important constructed lessons that i then get to apply to modern pioneer whatever yeah shane what's yours is it is it brawl oh it's it's limited um i like the accessibility of limited and it's just fun and it doesn't rely on much more than understanding the the set and having some general you can like you can go to a, a a normal limited event and if you have some fundamentals about you, have some fun. I mean, if you're going to win a lot, you want to have a lot of deep knowledge about the format, but it doesn't require anything. You don't have to take anything with you. You can just go drop 12, 15 bucks and have a lot of fun. I mean, Zach will have to confirm when he returns, but if I was a betting man, I think he would say commander. I think there's a good chance. Yeah, he was definitely very into commander for a while, I know. So Sean from our Slack asked what our favorite holiday song was. And specifically why it's run DMC's Christmas and Hollis. I don't actually know that song. Oh, it's it's a great song. I've never heard that song either. Oh, really? It's, you should go listen to it on Spotify right after this. I mean, there's only one answer for me, and it's Don't They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid 1984. Don't let them know it's Christmas time again. Yeah. Feed the world. See, I, I, just, wanted, I just wanted to sing on mic again. You know what? You know, I love singing on, on pod. That just is, it's like such an earworm. It's not actually good. I like you singing for 20 people singing as part of this. Dave, do you have a favorite holiday song? I know you're into grunge, rock, garage. I I, I don't think this one will be surprising to anybody. So my my favorite holiday song is... is no, what is that? <laughs> That's the Paul McCartney one. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> mine, is, mine is Father Christmas by The Kinks. 
which is uh, that has the chorus, Father Christmas, give me some money. I don't want any of your toys. <laughs> Save all your toys for the little rich boys, basically. It is a good, good one. I'm, I also don't particularly like the holidays, but uh, that's part of why. My wife loves Christmas songs, and they've been on since the very first Snowflake answered Denver, Colorado's airspace. That's funny. Stan, what's yours? I'm a big fan of Christmas Wrapping by The Waitresses, which is a one-hit wonder. I think it was like late 80s, maybe 1990 or something, but... It's such a catchy song with some killer licks. It's If it weren't a Christmas song, I think it would just be a, a great tune. A real bop. It's a good one. All right, so on the holiday theme, what's one weird niche gift you want this year? Asks uh, Patreon staple Josie. So ever since I saw Dave use these, I want them. And it's these like weird bubbles that go on top of the water for immersion circulator cooking. <laughs> And, Do you even sous vide, uh, bro? Oh man, dude, I sous vide mashed potatoes for the giving of thanks, and they slapped, and I'm gonna make them again. Um, it's gonna be great. Yeah, they're so good. But I, you do have sometimes when you're like the stuff's floating up, and you're like stand under the water, you jerk. And I want those little weird bubbles you have that keeps everything under the water. I will noted. Noted. Yeah, you got you have two days, three days. I'll figure it out. You have two shopping days. I had a food answer as well. I, I even told my fiance about this a few weeks ago, but I really want a rectangular frying pan for when I make bacon because I love bacon and I want to make better bacon. Didn't last didn't last episode. You just re- you, you sort of said that you were a person of the Jewish faith. Jewish people can eat bacon. Can they? As I live and breathe, my friend. <laughs> so we do need to talk about bacon, cooking bacon for a second, though. Yeah, we definitely need to talk. Have, about bacon. have you done the bacon method? The baking know. method? No, the bacon or method. The, if you go to the, the baconmethod.com, it is a website that was started by podcast pioneer Dan Benjamin of the 5 by 5 radio network, who has long been an advocate of cooking your bacon in the oven. And I have to say, yeah. that is the only yeah. way I do it. You bake it. Yeah, you got to bake it. And I uh, I would highly recommend that if you would like to try to maximize your bacon, baconitude, because it's great. Turns out great every time. You put it in a cold oven. Turn the oven to 400, cook it for 20 minutes, take the bacon out. It's perfect. 20 minutes? Who's got that kind of time when they're trying to make breakfast? Well, you you put, you put do it first, and then you make all the other breakfast, and the bacon's done at the end, and it's great. I mean... Yes, it's genius. Yeah, you don't have to pour any grease into like, yeah. Just... It's my favorite way to do it. I like my bacon very well done and crispy. Yeah. This will do Is that. Is that how it comes out? It will be. If you give it another couple minutes, it will be. Cook longer. Yeah. Hmm. Man, I hope I didn't get a rectangular frying pan then. <laughs> Dave, so even if it's not niche, what's what is something that you think is a little bit funny that you want this year? Just like do you need like 20 pairs of new socks or what? <sighs> Honestly, I've just been working on this like uh, Shane as we talked about before hooked me up with an, a computer or a bunch of components for a computer and so I've just been buying little things to like add on to it and so now I, you know, I Oh, you're farkling. Yeah, well I'm also like you know, trying to make the Wi-Fi in my house better. So I just got Wi-Fi extenders and, you know, I, I want to get a new mouse now so that I have a mouse that's not clicky, that's silent because I didn't own a mouse because I only had a trackpad before because for the first time in like 20 years, I'm a PC user instead of a Mac user, which is just... Dave, I'm sorry. Mind. 
Dave, I'm sorry I gave you a bunch of free computer parts. Well, no, it's, then it's great, but I'm just adding to it now, which is pretty fun. Scope creep. Yeah, there's a lot of scope creep going on over here. Uh, I think the main thing that I really want for Christmas is I just, I need another archive to be able to continue to file my cards with my method. And um, that's been really uh, unfortunate. I'm up to four. Yeah, this will be six or seven for me. So goodness, I'm uh, yeah feeling bad about myself right now. All right, thanks to everyone who submitted questions this week. As always, send us your questions. We'll try to fit them into a wind down. Sometimes, every once in a while, they even turn into dive downs. But that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Helps us find new listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash the dive down, or you can sign up for manatraders.com using the coupon code, the dive down, all one word to get 15% off your first three months of Mana Traders rental service, support the show, get better at magic at the same time. We love Mana Traders. You will too. Just a reminder, there will be no show the week after this. We will be, the dive down will be taking off the episode that we have planned to come out on January 2nd, I believe. Third. The third is the Friday. So yeah. the third, the episode that would normally come out on the third will not be happening this year. So enjoy your new year. next year, for that matter. Next year. Yeah, you're right. And we'll, we'll see you on the 10th. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and mana. Stary Mentor!